Would you join me, Matthew 15, this morning? Matthew 15, our second message. And this is actually kind of a continuation of last week's passage. Uh, These two sections go very much together. And so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read before our text. So today's text is actually verses 10 to 20, those 11 verses. But we're going to back up and read verses 1 to 9. Instead of me giving a long recap, we'll just kind of read a bit, and then we'll give a brief recap, and then we'll be able to get right into this week's text. So I think our kids have already been dismissed. They're already down the hallway at the beginning of the service today for a special missions emphasis going on down there. So if you want, pray even a a quick prayer for them as well, and uh, the little ones always. And thank you for everyone who rotates serving our, our children and babies and toddlers and Thank you so much. Matthew 15, look at verse number 1. We're going to read down to verse 20. So I'll go ahead and mention today we're going to have more passages of Scripture uh, in. Uh, I'll not get bogged down in any of the others except verses 10 to 20 because that's our text. Verse 1 through 20, though, in, in an overview. Here we go. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, so this is an official delegation. They've been sent to check him out. Well, it didn't take them long before they found a problem. <clears throat> verse, at the end of verse 1, they came from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why is this being allowed to happen? They're breaking the tradition of the elders. How? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And if you remember from last week, he's not talking about they have germy, dirty hands. He's not a hygiene. It's about they've not ceremonially washed their hands this way where water runs off at the wrist. And then the defilement washed off there. And then let pour more water this way so water runs off at the fingertips. And then washing both hands with the fist of the other. Why aren't they doing that? They're over there right now eating food. Why are you allowing this to happen? They have a problem with Jesus because of his disciples. Verse 3 says, he answered them. But technically, the answer here is not directly answering their question because he answers their accusatory, judgmental question with a more serious, pertinent question. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. So there again, just very quickly recap. Here they are talking to the Lord. The disciples are back here. The Lord is the good shepherd between the accusers and attackers and his followers. So he's fielding these questions. They want to know why they're not adhering to the traditions of the elders. And Jesus says, no, wrong question. You don't need to worry about them. You need to worry about you. Why do you not break traditions? Why do you break commandments and not break traditions of the elders? Why do you break commandments of God? That's the more pertinent question And then verse 4, he gives them an example of how they do that. In fact, so here's his point. When it comes down to your traditions, listen, some of those are fine. Some traditions are fine. Nothing wrong with them. But their problem was when it came to their tradition colliding with the Lord's commandments, they defaulted and kept their tradition, even if it means breaking his commandments, God's commandments. Here's one example, verse 4. Jesus says, here's an example. For God commanded, God, not the elders, this is not tradition. God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Okay, how serious is he about that? 
God also commanded the middle of verse 4, Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you, you scribes and Pharisees, say, here's what you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother the following. So here's the person talking to the father or mother. Father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. In other words, sorry, you're not going to get any of my money or my possessions. I know what the Lord says, but I found a way to get out of that obligation because I've dedicated my property and belongings and money to the temple when I die. I'm going to live on it as much as I need to while I'm alive, but when I die, it goes to the temple. So I can't give any of it to you because it's been dedicated to God, and I've already taken this vow, and I can't go back on my vow. Look at verse Five, again, you say if anyone tells his father and mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. You let him buy with it. And Jesus' solution, summation there is, so for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You found a way for people to not have to keep the commandments of God, but boy, you're going to sure keep your tradition. Verse 7, very stinging words. You hypocrites, you play actors, you fakes and phonies. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you some 700 years earlier when he said, This people, you are another fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This people, from God's perspective, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching, Isaiah, you're included in Isaiah's prophecy because you are teaching as doctrines, as doctrines, the commandments of men. Just commandments of men. You're getting on my guys because they didn't do a little washing ceremony the way that you demand that they do. Now verse 10 is our text. And he called the people to him. You kind of get that scene. I'll I'll say this probably again a little bit later. Did you catch it? I want you to really picture this. They're here. Jesus is here. Disciples over there. Don't you know people are like, hey, blah, blah, blah. They're over here talking over there. Like, wait a minute. They're fussing at Jesus. What? And so finally the Lord, come on in. I know you're listening over there. Come on in. Might as well hear it really good. Verse 10. He called the people and said to him, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. Ladies and gentlemen, pay attention. This is our text. He calls the people to him and he tells them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. They're really serious about this defilement, these scribes and Pharisees and the Jews as a whole. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'll probably repeat it again. There's a gap between 11 and 12 They're moving into a house. It is now just Jesus and his disciples. You don't see it here, but you see it in Mark chapter 7. So that's how we're left with the end of that. Then they move into the house. Well, this is going to come up again. Verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I guess you know you offended the Pharisees with what you said. Really? Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. We're talking to you about the Pharisees. Exactly. Every plant, you know they're offended. 
Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. Let them alone. Leave them alone. Be apart from them. Why? They are blind guides. The Pharisees taught people of their day. They literally had this moniker of themselves. We're spiritual guides. The people are blind and we're their spiritual guides. Jesus literally plays off of their attitude toward themselves. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. I'm not even 100% sure why he calls it that. But he's talking about verse 11. I'll go ahead and tell you. I hope you caught it already. Verse 11 is the crux of today. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And so Jesus said, are you, you see the word you in verse 16 and 17. It's plural there. Explain the parable. Apparently they've been talking. And so Peter, as usual, he's the spokesperson. We need you to explain what you said back there. They were offended. We need it explained. He said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Simple biology. Really good. Straightforward. Physical biology. Jesus got it right. Do you not know that? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Now he goes, I'm going to go further. So I really want you to notice the prepositions. They're asking about what goes into the mouth. And Jesus says, there's food into the mouth, but there's what comes out of the mouth. What's coming out of the mouth is coming from the heart. So you can see where he's putting his emphasis. Verse 19 For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. We often use the word fornication. Theft, false witness, slander. So here are the Lord's words. These are what defile a person. We're defiled by our evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, thieving, False witness and slander, these are what defiled a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So we saw verses 1 through 9. And we noted last week that, again, when it came to traditions in the Word of God, the Pharisees honor tradition above the Word of God. We noted that it didn't happen just then. It still happens today. Many spiritual leaders are teaching, regularly teaching their people man-made rules and regulations and traditions that really don't have a basis in the Word of God. And that can create a whole culture. And that's where I told you guys last week, you've got to watch us that we don't do that and put more upon you that is not in the Word of God. People did that. And here's the most unfortunate thing. People can sometimes be following someone's man-made list of rules and regulations and they start to feel righteous because they're keeping man-made rules. And then they start to feel superior to others who are not keeping the man-made rules that they're keeping. And then the worst of all, they actually become judgmental of them and condemning of them because you're not keeping the list of rules that we have. And I gave you like 10 or 12 examples of those that I've experienced in my life last week. We'll not revisit that. So this week, let's notice three things 
out of verses 10 to 20. First of all, verse 10 and 11, then we'll see 12 to 14, and we'll spend most of our time in 15 to 20. Notice number one, 10 and 11. This does contain the crux of the message, though. A shocking statement of new revelation. Notice the word new. This is a shocking statement. Verse 10 and 11 contains a shocking statement. I've used that idea. I've noticed several times. I've not seen how many, but multiple times in teaching Matthew, I've used this idea of a shocking statement as one of my points. Well, here's another one, but this one is extremely shocking. This is a shock, hear me, shocking statement of new revelation. Go back to verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. I'm not going to dig deep here. Just want to get this across. Everybody with me? Watch. So, Jesus is the most courageous man who's ever lived, far and away. Here's an example. He's not afraid of the awkward moment. And I realize in this room, there's some of you like, I'm not afraid of the awkward moment. I'm not afraid of confrontation. Okay? Some people may like it too much. The Lord doesn't like it too much. But some of you, you know, like, I just, I'll just be quiet and I'll just go along and... When I get away from them, then I'll talk about it to somebody else, or I'll just not do what they say. But I just, I just don't like that. Do you see how awkward this is? They're there. They've just accused the Lord's disciples. He's cutting them off with a question that really you need to deal with yourself. And now he's going to come full circle. Here's what he doesn't do. The Lord does not hear their accusation. His disciples have broken their ceremonial laws. He's not like, you know... Afraid that word's going to get out. Please don't say anything. I'm doing the best. These are just fishermen. You understand? I'm trying. Don't let the word. I'm trying to build something here. I'm trying to make a name for myself. Don't let the big guys down in Jerusalem know. That. The Lord doesn't do that. He's not ashamed at all. No, those are your, your. Hey, in fact, everybody, y'all just come on in instead of listening over on the edge. Just come on in because I want you to understand something. They're hypocrites. Don't listen to them. But here's what he says. Hear me. All of you. Mark says, all of you hear me and understand. So my main point here, we need, we're going to deal a lot with verse 11, but I, I, I can't skip verse 10. Jesus says, hear and understand. Jesus calls people, all of us, to listen to what he says with an intention of understanding. Catch what I just said. Jesus wants us to listen to what he says with the full intention of understanding. So I'm going to propose to you this morning, be alert. Be alert. Whether you're reading the Bible for yourself, you're just home reading your Bible, or sitting here this morning, or in Sunday school. Don't go through the motions. The Lord demands of us that we listen with an intention to understand. So can I encourage you, here today, again, private time in the Word of God, listening to teaching and preaching on the radio or broadcast, engage your mind, engage your will, Engage your whole heart with a determination, Lord, I want to understand this and I want to obey this. I'm surrendering my will. I'm bringing my mind. I'm activating. I'm being engaged. Listen, everybody listen. When it's interesting and when you're like, hey, this is actually pertinent. I've literally been thinking about it. I need this. It's going to be useful. Pay attention when that happens. When you find it not interesting, I'm just not that interested in that. Or I don't see how this is really pertinent to my life. Some of you this morning may say, Honestly, Jeff, if I've looked at this passage correctly, I'm probably not going to find this interesting. I don't see how this is that pertinent to my life. Listen, engage with an intention to understand. 
engage. The Lord demands it. Can I say it this way? People, Pharisees, my disciples, whether you put this into your life immediately or quickly in the form of changing your diet, that's not Jesus' point. I want this in your theology now. I want this in your theology right now. MacArthur finishes, and if you're waiting on a note, here it comes. MacArthur writes, in this case, it was not that what Jesus said Not that what Jesus said would be hard to understand, but that it would be hard to accept. Catch that. It's not that what Jesus... So Jesus is saying, hear and understand. He's real intentional. Folks, come over here. Get close. Listen to what he says. Listen with the intention of understanding. And then he says something that, frankly, I agree with MacArthur as he writes. That's why I'm putting it in your notes. It's not that what Jesus says here is really hard to understand. It's hard to accept. Now pay attention. All through Matthew, I come across things, and I, don't, I didn't pull examples, but over and over the Lord will say some things, or there'll be a passage, and I'm just puzzled. Y'all have heard me refer to like just wrestling with this. What's going on? Would you look at verse 11, like with your eyes, hopefully got your Bible open, look at verse 11 and ask yourself, if I were to take just verse 11, let it stand on its own, is there anything that is super encrypted here? They call this a parable, like this hidden saying, this dark saying. Lift verse 11 with your eyes. Just be honest. Is this hard to understand? Jesus says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Is that hard? It's not hard to understand, but definitely in their world, it was hard to accept. Let me give you an example. I don't think the plan of salvation is hard to understand. We've been talking a lot about this on Wednesday night. What if a purely lost person who's sitting here, they've never been in church their life, they've never opened the Bible, what if they just heard this, just this? There is a God and He's holy. You are a sinner. You've broken His laws. I didn't even know what they were. Well, he's written them down, and he's put them on your heart. It's part of your being. You have a conscience. Every time you break and sin against your conscience, it's a signal that you've probably broken one of God's laws. There is a God. He's holy, and he hates your sin. He's so offended by your sin. He can't tolerate your sin. He must put you away from him. You can't be with him, but it's worse. God is also a just God who has to punish our sin. He has to punish. He can't just like make us live over there while he lives over here. He, because he's the just judge of all the world, he has to punish our sins, and that's why people go to hell. But God loves us. I mean, he really loves us so much that he gave. He gave his one and only son, his son, God the son. And the son became a man for several reasons, but mainly so that the son of God could take our sins, die on a cross as a payment for our sin, and his blood to cleanse away our sin. And now through Jesus' death on the cross, God's made a law and a rule that though he can't tolerate your sin and he must punish your sin, he's removed it in Christ on the cross. He's punished your sins in Christ. On Jesus willingly took it on himself. God punished your sins on Christ on the cross, and therefore he can now give away. This is the key. He gives away salvation for free if you'll hear that and believe it and 
receive it. Like, I believe that. I've never heard this. Do you know that someone could just right now hear that and believe it? They'd be saved. Is that hard to understand? No. But it's hard to accept. Because here's what most people do. But what else? It can't be just that. Surely I have to. No, you ruined it. You cannot be saved by doing that. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to accept. I'll go further. Today, there are Christians that are in a valley of decision right now. They're in a valley of indecision. And some are wondering what the will of God is. What's the will of God? And it's, it's gray. It's confusing. They're looking. They're surrendering. They're, there's that. But guys, I'm talking about a, there's, there are Christians who right now need to make a decision. And it's not gray. It is black and white. It's not hard to understand. God says this, and they need to line up with that. But they're acting like it's a struggle. Yeah, the problem is you don't want to accept God's will. Lots of Christians live there. Has that been you this week? Boy, if we're not spending long on a verse, I sure spent a long time on verse 10. i got to move quicker. Here we go. Look at verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Could we say it this way? This is actually Jesus' answer to verse 2. Hey, why do your disciples... Why aren't they washing their hands? They're breaking the traditions of the law. Here's Jesus' answer. The reason that I don't stop them is because it's unimportant. Here's why. Their hands touching food does not defile the food, and that food going into their body does not defile them and keep them at a distance from God. Their food is not defiling them. That's why I don't make a big deal of it. But watch. It's as though, I'm reading between the lines, it's as though the Lord says, since you've brought up food, here, verse 11 is the answer to verse 2, but while we've brought up food, I'm going to go a little bit further. Let me just make a statement about food, a big statement about food, and that's what he does in verse 11. So a while ago, I asked you to look at 11. Would you look at it again? But now I'm going to ask you, look at the second part. Look at 11b, right? Look at 11b. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Look at it again, 11b. I'm looking at it. You should be looking at it. You at home, you're not looking at the TV now. You're looking at verse 11b. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, everybody listen. That's not new. They knew that. They know if they tell lies and blaspheme and curse and, and gossip and slander and boast and brag. They've defiled themselves. They know that part. Now go back and look at verse A. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Verse 11B, not new. 11A, shockingly new. Shockingly new. Why? What did, did, so much so they're going to go in the house and they've got to bring it up again. Could you explain the dark cryptic saying that you said? Oh, you mean the one where I said what goes in the mouth doesn't defile a person? What part are you not getting? Yeah, we need that explained. <laughs> you know, that 2 plus 2 plus 4, 2 plus 2 equals 4. What, what does that mean again? We're, we're really struggling, really? Okay. So he ended up spelling it out even more so in the second half of our passage. Why is it so shocking? If you're taking notes, here's the problem. Because in their world, they know that Moses' law has declared certain foods unlawful for God's people to eat. It's unlawful for God's people to eat certain foods. Now, if I had time, I, that's why here's one of the reasons I told you earlier. We have six passages, 36 verses total. We already read 20, right? So we have five other things, just a verse here and there and this, that, and the other to go. 
I'm saying that because if we had time, we would pause and go back to Leviticus 11 and we'd go to Deuteronomy and track some things down. What were these laws? So right now you're saying, are we really going to talk about food for 60% of the message today? We are because that's where the text is. So hear and understand. Make your mind, I want to hear this and I really want to understand. So without turning back to Leviticus 11 and other passages, let me just ask you, do you guys remember the Old Testament dietary laws? Do you remember what they were? The people of God could eat fruits and vegetables and grains and breads and all those things. But here's the good news. The people of God could also eat animals, but they were very specific animals. Raise your hand if you remember the two rules that had to be true. Both had to be true of an animal before it would be declared. I'm not going to point you out, so you can even... Don't lie. I started saying, you can lie. I said, don't, don't lie. Verse 19, false witness, hand up. Yeah, I'm not. Since you're not asking what the two things are, I'll say that I... No. Let me give them to you. What could they eat? We can eat animals? Yeah, listen carefully. Here it is. For an animal to be considered clean and allowable and not unlawful, it had to have a hoof. But not just any hoof. So right off the bat, paws and claws, gone. Can't eat those. Has to have a hoof. Has to be a split hoof. Has to have a divided hoof. That's one. Second thing, it has to chew the cud. So you have these animals, they eat vegetation, it goes into the stomach. A little bit later, they regurgitate it back up, they chew it some more, and they swallow it again. Back in the stomach, some of them cough it up again and chew it some more. For an animal to be considered, for God's people, lawful to eat, it had to have a cloven hoof and chew the cud. So right off the bat, we have certain animals that are okay to eat and some that are not. Rabbits chew the cud, but they have paws, no hoof, they're out. Horses have a hoof, but it's not a split hoof. They're out. Camels are out. Pigs have a split hoof, but they don't chew the cud. They're out. Some of you are like, pigs? No, hold on, man. That's, that's sitting a little close to home. Now, don't be talking about my bacon and sausage and ham. I really like it. Pork chops. We're having that for lunch. Okay. Are you? Did you have sausage and bacon this morning? <laughs> Tyler already knows where we're going. Um, fish. Oh, by the way, you say, look, so then what in the world can be eaten that fits those descriptions? Cows, sheep, goats, deer, those type of animals, milk from them. Clean, you can have that. Fish, what's in the water that they could eat? Quite a bit, but quite a bit's off limits. Here's two more rules. Has to have fins and, what's the other? Scales. Fins and, right, has to have scales. Nope, has to have fins and scales. So again, we can make a long list of what's off limits. To them, no sharks, no lobster, no scallop, no shrimp, no catfish. You're like, really? Man, you just ruined what I had Friday night. All right, hang on. What can be eaten? Bass, trout, flounder, tuna, cod, salmon, plenty of other things. These are just things that we would relate with. Fins and scales. Here's insects. You're like, I don't eat insects. They could, remember John the Baptist. The insects were mostly like one main thing, kind of break it up into three parts. Locusts, crickets, grasshoppers, you can eat those, no other insects. Two other main rules, I'm almost done with this section. Two other main rules about what foods they could eat. If an animal dies on its own, you find an animal dead. Oh, look, this is one of the allowable animals. No, if it died on its own, you cannot eat it. That's forbidden. That would be unlawful. You have to kill it. And if you and when you kill the animal, it has to have its blood drained. So the blood can't be in it. And so this would be prepared by what they now consider we call kosher 
butchers. These are, and to this day, many, many people only buy their meats from a kosher butcher, knowing that they will have prepared only certain ones only the right way. So here's my question. Don't answer out loud, but I wonder how many Christians in the United States regularly eat foods that are forbidden in the Old Testament? How many Christians? So let me go further. Remember, hear and understand with an intention of obeying. How many Christians, because your plan, you're going through the whole Bible, and you started, some of you, somebody listening right now, you've started in Genesis, you're going through the whole Bible, and because of that, at that rate that you're going, a few weeks ago, you hit Leviticus 11, and you read that. Were you reading it thoughtfully? Did you just read it, check it off the list, and go make your eggs and bacon? Literally just reading this being called unlawful, unclean. I wonder how many Christians in America do this and they don't have a Bible reason why they eat the foods that they eat. Don't have a Bible reason. If you were to ask them, are you seriously eating that? Yeah. Why? I like it. Have you ever read Leviticus 11? Oh, yeah, I read it the other day. Wasn't that on so I ask again, why do you? Here's another one. I assume it's okay. Everybody I know does it. And I like it. That's not a Bible reason. The Bible specifically says this. So notice verse 11, what Jesus says. Let me give you marks. You'll not need to turn there. Look at on the screen. Mark chapter 7, look at verse 15. Mark 7, 15. Here's Mark's account of this. It's, it's even a little stronger. Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. There is nothing outside of a person that can defile him. So, Jeff, what's going on here? If you want to take notes, write this down. Mark 7.15 and Matthew 15.11 does not mean that all foods are equally healthy. This is not promoting, hey, you should go try all kinds of food. They're all good for you. No, it doesn't mean all the foods out there are good for you. What the Lord is saying here is that none of these foods are spiritually defiling to us. The Lord is saying that. And we're like, oh, well, how does that correlate with what's going on back here in Leviticus? In the law of Moses, no less. One commentator offers the following. Hear this. Let this sink in. He writes, It may well be that for a Jew, this was the most startling thing Jesus ever said. Really? I'm, I'm thinking this is literally up there in their world. He writes, It may well be for a Jew that this was the most startling thing Jesus ever said. For in this saying, he does not only condemn scribal and Pharisaic ritual. He moves forward and says, He actually wipes out large sections of the book of Leviticus. This is not a contradiction of the tradition of the elders alone. This is a contradiction of Scripture itself. So now we see... It's not that it was encrypted hard truly to understand. It's hard to accept in light of other things that we know the Bible says. They didn't have the New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament. And they're hearing Jesus say this like, we need you to explain that again. Do you not understand? What goes out here comes in here. Do you not understand that? No, we don't. Because we're comparing what you're saying with what we've heard and read in the Bible. 
It's very confusing. This is a shocking statement. Number two, I'll be brief on verses 12 through 14. Jesus exposes the Pharisees as blind guides. He exposes the Pharisees as blind guides. So again, I gave a heads up during our initial reading. Verse 12 says, then the disciples. So there's this gap of time. They're in a house. The Pharisees are not in the house. The people are not in the house. This is private time with the Lord and his disciples. This is him investing in them and teaching them what they're going to need to know. And in the process, they say, verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Let me ask you something. He said a lot of offensive things. He doesn't answer their question. He accuses them of breaking God's laws. He gives an example. They have egg on their face as they're listening to this. He then says, you hypocrites. He says that you honor God with your lips, but your heart's far from Him. You're teaching His doctrines the mere commandments of men. What, is, what do these guys mean when they say, you know you offended them by what they said, by what you said. I'm going to contend that it was not so much verses 7, 8, and 9 that offended them. Much more so it is verse 11. They're far more offended theologically by verse 11 than by what Jesus says about them personally in verses 7 through 9. Now this is offensive. Like, do you know you have just taken a stance against Moses? In their mind, this is a big problem. And so the disciples say, do you know that you've offended? Guys, again, I think the Lord's unspoken answer here is I don't care that I catch it I don't care that I offended them they needed offended why now verse 13 every plant that my heavenly father is not planted will be rooted up what does that mean he's using two analogies one is about vegetation and the other is about blind guides here's what he's saying if you were to look at God's kingdom as a garden or as a vineyard the Lord plants things And these people, these Pharisees, are taking up space. They're occupying a place that God did not plant them. They're filling a space that God did not plant them, and they're going to be plucked up. I wonder, is this an allusion back to chapter 13 with the the parable of the, the, the wheat and the weeds and how the weeds are going to be plucked up and cast into the fiery furnace? I think that's what the Lord's saying. They're in a spot they're not supposed to be in. What is that spot? They're out proclaiming themselves to be teachers who represent God. They're speaking on behalf of God. They don't have permission. They're filling a spot God has not called them to fill. And so he's saying judgment is coming. They're going to be plucked up. Now verse 14. Let them alone. They are blind guides. Why are they blind? I want to tell you why they're blind. Watch this. They're blind because if there was something in my hand that was small, that being Truth from God, truth about God, truth about God's kingdom, truth is about us that we don't know. Watch. These things are hidden. It's called revelation when God uncovers the truth and allows a person to see the truth and for the intention so that you'll know it and then you go tell other people this truth. And then some few people are not only shown truth to declare it, they're shown truth to write it down in the form of not only revelation but inspiration. And so these guys have called themselves, you know, prophets and teachers on behalf of God. We're, we're the guides who are leading the blind people, the, the Jews who don't know any better. We're their guides. And the Lord's saying, you've not even seen any revelation. You have no right. You're planted in the wrong place. You're going to be plucked up. You've taken a role that is not yours because you've never received spiritual revelation. You're spiritually blind. 
You need to get out of the guide business. You're not qualified to be in the guide business. I liken it like this. They were as useless guiding people spiritually as I would be guiding an expedition up Mount Everest. They're that useless. More so. More dangerous. I promise you this. I don't think I'll ever be at Mount Everest, but if I were to ever be there and start traipsing up the mountain, the last thing anyone in this world should ever do is follow Jeff Bartlett on an expedition up Mount Everest. Why? You say, why? You seem like a decent enough guy. You seem honest enough. I'm honest enough to tell you. Don't follow me. Why? I know nothing about mountain climbing. I know very little about Mount Everest. Now, the good thing, I will never attempt to do this. This is a massive thing. I've never been. Not the message. Quick picture. When you see these planes that are flying and they're leaving that vapor trail or that, that smoke trail behind them, they, they may be up like 33, 34, 35,000 feet. Well, take about 5,000, just a little fraction off of that, and you're talking about the top of Mount Everest. You don't need to follow me up that. I will get myself killed. I'll get everybody on the expedition killed. And here's what's much worse than dying physically. The Lord's saying, verse 14, let them alone. They're leading people. They're playing a role of spiritual guide, and people are following them. They're following them literally into a pit. If you're taking notes, write the following. They're spiritually blind guides who are literally leading people to hell. All the people who are following the Pharisees and doing all the rules and keeping all the, all the expectations, they're literally following them right into hell. The Pharisees are going to hell, and these people are going right behind them. The Lord's saying, stop. Separate from them. Let them alone. Now, Will, right before I finish this section, because I want to get to the third, I struggled with those three words. What does let them alone mean? What's the Lord saying there? Okay? What do you, I wish we had time to discuss. What do you think this means when Jesus says, let them alone, they're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Let them alone. Does that mean that false teachers like the Pharisees are just like, listen, just let them be. Just let them be. Anybody that's dumb enough to go follow them deserves what they get. Is that what it means? I think what he means is this. Avoid, listen, avoid them. Avoid their teaching. There are times where we're going to have to oppose false teaching. So then what does this mean? We're going to have to oppose false teaching. But in my mind, this is where, where I settled on this. I think the Lord is saying, don't make, Jeff, others of you, don't make your primary ministry going around refuting false teachers. Don't make that your goal in life. I think there are some people who literally do that. They'll, tomorrow morning or tonight, they're going to go on people's websites that they don't like, and they're going to really scour and nitpick, hoping that they find false teachers, and they're going to do podcasts all week long. I'm going to tell you right now, the Lord's not called me to a ministry of refuting false teachers. You say then, we just let them go, let them ride. No. We mainly refute their lives by faithfully teaching God's word. Just be faithfully doing the positive, And in the process, you're going to be shedding light on the other. And there may be times we have to call out a specific case. But by and large, just be busy. Keep staying at the truth. And then that will take care of the other. And hopefully people have an option like... The more I'm hearing truth, this sounds false. I'm going to leave. Yes, leave them alone. Avoid them. Come over here. Number three. Verses 15 to 20. We call it this point. I think this hopefully gets the idea across. 
Jesus contrasts food with our hearts. Jesus contrasts foods with our heart. Let's say it properly. Jesus contrasts foods with our hearts. So it's foods and our heart. He's going to contrast the two. Look, if you would, verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Is everybody still here listening and hearing to understand? Check yourself like, okay, stay alert, stay alert. What does this mean? This is important. Right out of the gate, one of the things I noticed, I'm not saying Jesus is losing his patience. They're testing his patience. And as though the Lord is rebuking them, like, hold on, guys, listen. Hey, we're private now. He rebukes them because it's been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom, according to chapter 13, verse 11. They want to know, how come you're teaching the people in parables? Because it's been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom. But to them, it's not been given to them to know. You're you're getting inside track on something. And I think the Lord's saying, guys, you've been called to teach and speak on God's behalf. You've already gone out in a ministry. You've been teaching and preaching about the kingdom. Do you not understand? I wonder if there's not a subtle, again, this takes us right back. Hang with me. This takes us back. I wonder if there's not a subtle implication here like, hold on, fellas. Is this really about understanding or are you struggling to accept it? Is it a matter that this is confusing to you or is it a matter of you are refusing? Is it confusing or is it about you refusing to accept it? And then frankly, if you look at verse 17, it's kind of crude. Very blunt. Some of you have a note there at the bottom of your ESV Bible. Basically, look at verse 17 again. Do you not see, all of you, plural, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's expelled? Here's what he's saying. Do you guys not understand that food is foreign and it's brought into the heart? Food and drink are foreign and it's brought into the mouth. And then it goes through the digestive system into the stomach and from there further to the digestive system. And ultimately, you say, well, what really happens with our food? It goes in the toilet. That's what he's saying. It's expelled into the latrine. It's expelled into the toilet. And then what happens to it there? It goes either in your septic tank or out to the sewage plant. You're like, well, where's all this money we're spending on all this food? It's in your septic tank. The Lord's saying, do you not know that? His point, it's just food. Right, we've got to be real careful about what food we... No, it's just, it's just food. Just food. It's not defiling you. It's not going into the heart. It ends up in the toilet. It doesn't end up in the heart. What's the ramifications of this? You got your Bibles. Flip over. Look over at Mark. Because I want you to see this. You'll see it on the screen as well. But look at Mark chapter 7. Mark adds a commentary. And some may say, oh, that's just Mark. And I find it interesting that they say that Mark is heavily influenced by Peter. Remember, Peter's the one that asked the question. Look at Mark chapter 7. And in verse 19, Mark adds this commentary that apparently Jesus didn't say. But you say, okay, that's just his opinion. No, no, no. Mark is being inspired by God to write what he writes. And so Mark makes an extremely strong statement. Watch verse 19. So back up to... 
18 just a touch. Do you not see that whatever goes on to a person from outside cannot defile him? Why? Since it enters not in his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, here's what Mark writes, he declared all foods clean. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So now let's go back full circle. Jeff, earlier you talked about Christians who are eating pork and pork chops and ham and catfish and shrimp and lobster and all the things that I really like. And how come, uh, you know, we we do that? And I'm going to be honest with you. I've just done it because I like it because I thought it was okay. Do we have a good Bible reason? Yeah, some people might not like this Bible reason, but I'm going to make it really clear, really plain. So why do we today, what gave Tyler the confidence to say amen when asked about bacon and sausage? Like it's good stuff, right? It tastes good. If you're taking notes, write this down. Mark seven nineteen says, Jesus declared all foods now clean, all foods. So, conclusion, we are not bound to Old Testament dietary laws. Why? Here it is, real simple, because Jesus says so. You're like, hold on. But Moses has like this whole chapter in Leviticus 11, and there's all these other passages talk about all these unclean. They had all these traditions. Yeah, why don't you guys do that today? They're in South Carolina because Jesus says so. And some people are like, that's not a good enough reason. That we better have a little bit more. No, that's plenty of reason. I want to give you a quote. This one's a pretty strong quote. You've got to think. D.A. Carson writes the following. I, I think this one's... You've got to think, though, or you're going to miss it. Are you ready? You ready? Carson writes the following. He says, Jesus insists that the true direction in which the Old Testament law points is precisely what he teaches, what he is, what he inaugurates. Let me read that again. You're like, really? You got excited about that? Hang with me. Jesus insists that the true direction in which the law points, the Old Testament law points, is precisely what he teaches. The Lord, what, what is the law about? What does it point to to you? What I teach. What he is. What he inaugurates and continues. He, Jesus, has fulfilled the law. Therefore, whatever prescriptive force it continues to have is determined by its relationship to him, not vice versa. Catch that. Last line needs read again. He's fulfilled the law, therefore whatever prescriptive force it continues to have is determined by its relationship to him, not vice versa. Well, how do you line up with the law? He fulfilled it. It's really, really clear. Therefore, the question isn't how does he match up with the law? The law now submits and matches up. Here's the point. The law pointed to Christ. He's been identified. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He kept it, and now the law submits to Christ. He's the Lord. He's greater than the law. Does he have this prerogative to say what he did here and just kind of change and override the rules? Absolutely. He's the son of God. This is his prerogative. Why do we have to keep these Old Testament laws? Jesus said so. That's the reason. Oh. But can he just kind of do this? Yep, he can. He did. And I know you're like, man, you're really excited about food up there. This, This goes to so many more areas than food. Go to Acts chapter 10. Let's hit our fourth one that I told you would be hitting six. Let's go to our fourth one today. Acts chapter 10. And I'll be brief here. But I'm not going to read verses 1 through 8. But here's what's happening. I could really bog down. I'm not. At this point, the church is just Jews. And there's some recent 
half-Jews called Samaritans who are coming in. It's just Jews who have put their faith in Christ. Again, Gentiles who have become Jews. You become Jewish, and then they become Christians, and then there's some folks who are literally in their blood like mixed Jew and Gentile called Samaritans, and so they've been brought in. No Gentiles. This chapter is about the first Gentile, first one of us who is brought into the kingdom and is, stays a Gentile. And his name is Cornelius. Long story, watch. He's praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Lord sends an angel. The angel says, send to this town about 30-some miles away. You're in Caesarea. Send down to Joppa, down south. There's a guy named Peter. He's staying in a man named Simon the Tanner's house over by the sea. So you need to send and get Simon Peter, who's staying with Simon the Tanner. Have him come back. And what he tells you to do, that's what you need to do. Because Cornelius has been praying. He knows something's not right in his life. He believes in God, but he hasn't put it all together. He's, he's not saved, and he wants to know how to have a right relationship with the Lord. The Lord sends an angel. Guess what? Cornelius, sent, as soon as the, the, this vision is over, he sends three of his men, two of his household servants and one of his soldiers. This man is a, a Roman officer over a hundred soldiers, an extremely powerful man, Cornelius, but a Gentile. And he sends his three men. Now we'll come to verse 9. Here we go. The next day, so they left on one day. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, they've left Caesarea, they're approaching Joppa, where Peter is. He has no clue what's happening. Peter, again, no clue, went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Sixth hour in their time was noon. He's going up at noon. He's going to pray. He became hungry like you guys do at noon. He became hungry, wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, apparently the people in the house, he fell into a trance. He's going to see a vision that is so real that... Won't cover it, but two chapters later, he's going to have another. Uh, no, it's not a vision. Two chapters later, he's going to be released from prison in the night as he's woken up. And, and when he's actually being released, he thinks it's a vision. That tells me what really happened in his life, he thinks, is a vision. That tells me what happens in chapter 10 is so real, it's like really life. And the Lord is moving and he's using this vision. Again, verse 10 again. He became, Peter became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened. This really happened, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real event. You ought to get into it. Verse 11. He saw the heavens open. He's up on a rooftop near the sea. You could probably see the Mediterranean Sea just out from the way. He saw the heavens open in something like a great sheet, like a really big sheet, like a parachute, descending out of the heaven, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Being let down, the idea of kind of like a, the stork. It's in other words, not the parachute that direction. Turn the parachute upside down because it's carrying something. It's lower down and it lands. And when it opens up, this great sheet, what's in it? Verse 12. In it were all kinds of animals. All kinds of animals. Verse 12 again. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. All kinds. What they would consider unclean kinds. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You're hungry? Kill some of these animals and eat them. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. But it's not over. Because Luke just summarizes verse 16. He could have made three or four more verses because he just says, This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I'll go ahead and tell you right, right here. Peter never rose and killed and ate. 
He is told, rise and kill and eat. And there's reptiles and all kinds of birds and all kinds of animals in this. He's told, rise, kill, and eat. Not so, Lord. Why? I've never done that. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm a good kosher Jew. You see what he's saying? You say, Jeff, when did this happen? Acts chapter 10. This is at least seven, eight, nine years after what we're looking at in Matthew. You know what this tells me? Even though he heard Jesus tell it to the Pharisees, he gets this private tutorial inside the house. Peter is still not changing his diet. Why? Because I'm not doing that. I've been raised this way. I'm not going to do that. And he's holding on. The Lord sends him a vision. Now, backstory. The main lesson of this vision is that God wants Peter to know that Gentiles, us, who have heretofore been looked at as unclean. And if they want a relationship with God, they need to enter into the covenant through the Jewish relationship of of Abraham. And now the Lord is showing him, hey, things are changing here in chapter 10. Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become Christians. Gentiles can stay Gentiles and go directly to becoming Christians. That's the primary lesson. But the secondary lesson is still about food. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so. Did y'all notice what happened here? Did you catch it? Who's speaking? Who's speaking to Peter? The Lord. Peter refuses not doing it. Did you catch what he even said? Not so, Lord. By no means, Lord. Can I just throw this out? That phrase, where am I at? Yeah. That phrase in the middle of 14 can never really be said accurately. Remember I talked about Christians a while ago in the middle of the valley, and they're in the valley of decision. And it's real clear. It's black and white. But there they are in the middle. If you're going to go directly against what the Lord says, then don't call him Lord. You don't say, by no means, Lord. Well, then I'm not your Lord if you go against what I'm telling you to do. So then why didn't the Lord just zap him right there on the roof? You don't tell me no. Did y'all see what I said? The Lord is very patient. Very patient. Why? Can I throw this out? Let's write this down. Why is the Lord so patient? Let's write this down. It's important. This is an important note. It should be difficult to change our beliefs when we have scriptural reasons for them. I think the Lord is extra patient because it should be difficult to change our beliefs when we have Bible reasons for them. Peter had Bible reasons. Peter had the example of Daniel. Daniel went into exile. He refused to eat the king's meat, and God blesses him. The Maccabeans, they took a stand for the the ceremonial and, and the food laws. They took a stand. God blessed them. Peter knows all these stories. I've got these guys are a good example. And I've got Bible. He's struggling. I'm not gonna, it's been six, seven, eight years, nine years. He's still struggling. The early church is still struggling with this. Some of you had uh, someone I know a few weeks ago ask me about Galatians chapter 2. Raise your hand. Do you remember the time where Paul had to call down Peter publicly? You remember that? Raise your hand. You know what that had to do with? Sort of this same stuff. You know when that occurred? Probably 15 or more years after what we're reading in Matthew. That tells me that for a a decade and a half, at least, Peter's still struggling with this whole food thing. And yet the Lord is patient. Let me give you the rest of it. So yes, it should be difficult. Oh, you already have it. There it is. 
It should be difficult to change our beliefs when we have scriptural reasons. Now focus on the second half. Yet God's later revelation outranks the previous revelation. Somebody might get a little offended by what I'm about to say, but that's okay. It's still true. Do you know that many times I've had to update my theology because the scripture got in the way of what I believe? You say, that's not offensive. So here, what some people might not like. Ah. Later revelation outranks previous revelation. If your boss, if you're in construction and your boss tells you to go to such and such a job tomorrow at 8 o'clock, you'll be working there today. But something happens. And he calls you at 11 and says, hey, listen, finish out there till lunch. After lunch, I need you to be at another place at 1 o'clock. Nope, not going to do it. Excuse me? Not going to do it. You told me to work here today. Well, now I'm telling you to work over here. No, no, I'm, I'm here. No, you will do what I say. Later revelation outranks updates. So let me word it this way. What Jesus says to Peter on the rooftop updates and outranks what God told to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's that simple. Though Peter would never think, I'm just little Peter and that's, that's Moses. Peter... What he says to you on this place outranks and updates what God told Moses there. This is an important time. You really need to be paying attention. Hit, listen and understand. God just showed you something and his words matter. Another quote. This one's also a little confusing. I'm going to beg you. Like, really focus. Try to get it. R.T. France writes the following. Because remember... It's going to take the church a while to really implement what Jesus says as we go back to Matthew. It's going to take a while. France writes the following. That the issue took so long to be resolved is to be attributed more to natural religious conservatism than to any lack of clarity in Jesus' pronouncement. It's not that Jesus wasn't clear. Read it again, verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Verse 17. Do you not see that what goes into the stomach or into the mouth, passes into the stomach, and it is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Not hard to understand, hard to accept. He says, so the reason it took long is not because Jesus wasn't clear. Now, I want you to hear it first. This is going to be on the screen in a moment. Hear it first. France continues later. Jesus' pronouncement may perhaps be seen as the first pointer, in other words, translation, groundbreaking moment. You say, oh, this is why you're making a big deal about verse 11. This is a groundbreaking moment. Not to you. You already eat bacon and sausage and ham and catfish and shrimp. But in their world, this is a groundbreaking moment. France writes, Jesus' pronouncement may perhaps be seen as the first pointer toward a new Christian reevaluation of the Old Testament laws. This is the First pointer toward a new Christian reevaluation of the Old Testament laws. He writes that we'll find a fuller expression in the argument of the letter to the Hebrews. That, here it comes. So here's the first little groundbreaking time that's going to come out later in the book of Hebrews, to the, to the letter to the Hebrews, that the, uh oh, whole sacrificial system is now obsolete in light of Christ's one perfect. Sacrifice. And there's some people at that time that would be like, okay, whoa, I, 
man, I'm not doing it. But if you want to slide on the, the food rituals, that's one thing. But now you're talking about stopping the animal sacrifices at the temple. That's blasphemous. No, this is just the groundbreaking moment that's getting you ready for the bigger thing that's coming. Even the whole sacrificial system is going to be shut down. They're not offering sacrifices in Jerusalem today, if you didn't know that. Yeah, well, come. That's all over the Old Testament. Because Jesus died on a cross. We don't need to offer any more animal sacrifices. So just before we, last little thought on the food part. So Jeff, where does this leave us now? All right, this is where I'm going to be transparent and honest with you. So here we go. You ready? Where does this leave us now? I'll tell you where it leaves me. This is where it leaves me. As of today and all my life up to this point and what I anticipate to be the rest of my life, there are things, certain things that I don't put in my mouth. And you may be thinking, uh, hello? Did you not just get the point of the text you've been preaching all morning? I'm just telling you, there are certain things I don't put in my mouth. Mine are in, mainly in the drink area. I personally <clears throat> don't drink alcoholic drinks. I don't. Um, I've made a choice to do that. Some of you have made the same choice as I have, you don't, and I don't plan on drinking them. I, that's a choice I've made. Some of you have made a choice that you don't eat certain foods. You say, well, do I need to kind of change and start eating things because the Bible says that we can? No, you don't have to. I don't have to start drinking things just because the Bible says that I can. You say, well, then why don't you do that? Because... I've learned there's a danger in alcoholic drinks. I'm afraid of them. I can't afford to like them. I can't afford to lose my testimony to some people that wouldn't want to hear what I have to say, even though technically what I would be doing is not biblically wrong, but they may see it as wrong, and I just don't want to give that up right now. Or someone may see me doing that, and they take it to an extreme, which the Bible clearly says drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is unlawful. But here's my point. You say, where does this leave us as of now? There are many thing, fine things for us to do personally that we cannot teach and preach as doctrines. There are, per, there are things that we can do personally. I just gave you an example of mine. That we cannot teach and preach as binding on other people. Let me go further. Because I have chosen not to drink alcohol, I cannot think I'm righteous because I don't drink alcohol. I cannot think I'm superior to those who do. I cannot stand in judgment of those even among us who choose to drink Alcohol at a moderate level where they never reach drunkenness. Now, drunkenness, again, is a sin, and the Bible talks about that. But what I can't do in good conscience, and right now there's probably somebody that hasn't heard me say this multiple other times. They're like, no, the Bible says it's, it's sinful to drink alcohol. Find it and show it to me. I can give you about six passages that goes the other way. Proverbs 31. Matthew, other places. Um, it's just not in there. Psalms. But I've chosen to make this. So as long as I'm not thinking I'm righteous and superior and judgmental of others, I can do this. Go to Romans. This is our fifth of the Romans 14. And we have like four messages on Romans 14 that are on the website, I think. If you ever want to really dig into this much more. <clears throat> Romans 14, 
Romans 14. Paul is writing to the city of Rome to Christians who he's never met. They do not have an apostle. That's why he's writing this awesome book of theology. So here's, let me give you two kinds of Christians that are at their church. They didn't meet like this. They met in houses, probably maybe big houses and maybe big groups like we have here. Small groups and all in between. And sometimes all together and lots of breaking out. So here's the point. In that group, there were new Christians who were Jews. And they didn't hear Matthew 15. And all they know is we don't eat certain foods. And they're struggling with Christians who are doing that. Is that right or wrong? Paul's going to give them something in print to show them what God says about forbidden foods. But furthermore, the Lord is, Paul knows there are Gentiles. Uh oh, here's a notch up. There are Gentiles who are struggling because some Christians are eating meats that were offered as animal sacrifices to gods, foreign gods, idols. To be blunt in your world, if you knew that a cow was offered to Allah, like Muslims killed it, offered it to Allah, and there's some meat left over, and someone cooked it. Medium well, baked potato, extra butter, Thousand Island on the salad. Is it sinful to eat that? Watch verse 14. Paul tells these Romans, I know and am persuaded in the Lord. Paul wasn't there in Matthew 15, so the Lord tutored him personally, separately. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks thinks it unclean. Catch that phrase. Paul says, I know and persuaded in the Lord. The Lord's taught me this. Nothing is unclean. What about this meat that's been offered to Allah? Well, I'm not eating it as an offering to Allah. I'm eating a piece of steak. What about this drink over here in moderation? Again, the Jew, what about that food? Nothing's unclean of itself. Now, if you think it's unclean and you move forward and drink it, for you it is unclean. As if that wasn't enough, look at verse 20. Paul tells the Romans, do not, for the sake of food, well, I'm going to eat my food. I like my food, and I'm not giving it up for anyone. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. The work of God is people. That's one of the reasons I gave a while ago why I don't drink, right? It's for the sake of people. I don't, I don't want to destroy the work of God, but that's my decision. doesn't have to be your decision. Verse 20, Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. Everything is indeed clean. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul says it is all clean and acceptable and lawful to have as long as you give thanks for it. But notice again in the middle of verse 20. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. I think we got the point across there. Back to Matthew. Let's come down the home stretch of Matthew. Here we go. So, all right, Jeff. If food doesn't defile us, then what does? If food doesn't defile us, what in the world does? Verse 17 again. Let's read 17 to 20 and we'll come down the home stretch. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled and, as we said before, ends up in the latrine? But what comes... I said pay attention to the prepositions earlier. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Remember Mark says he declared all foods clean. 
Did y'all catch what he just said here? Pay attention. The Lord's not saying you don't have defilement just because the food. He's saying you have plenty of defilement irregardless of food. You don't need to worry about food. You have plenty of defilement. Where's this defilement? It's coming out in two forms. If you're taking notes, get ready. As we said last week, I need to repeat. God is... God is much more concerned with our heart, not this muscle. He's much more concerned with our heart than with our externals. Do not take that to mean that God doesn't care about our externals. So to be clear, there are no doubt many Christians whose externals are not honoring to God. They don't glorify God and frankly they're a stumbling block to other people. Well, how's that possible? If, if God's not that concerned, and I'm not saying He's totally unconcerned with our externals. He cares more about the heart. The reason that some Christians' externals are not honoring to God and are stumbling blocks to their brothers and sisters and even unsaved people in the world is because their heart's not right. They don't, they don't study the Word of God and totally surrender their will Studying the Word of God and then walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And that leads them, just apparently, it's okay. And they're just going through life. Laying stumbling blocks. And that's their problem, not mine. Okay, careful. I'm telling you, God cares much more about our heart. But that doesn't mean the externals are not important. The point is, the externals will take care of themselves when our heart is truly surrendered to the Lord. And we're spending time in His Word and walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That's when we'll be right. Food. Two things. Watch. It's foreign. It's not. It's foreign. And it's not going to stay but a little while. It's foreign. And it doesn't last. It never goes into the heart. But what comes out of the mouth. If we're taking word, uh, notes. Here we go. What comes out of the mouth represents our thoughts. Our will. Our core. And when our thoughts and our will and our core are sinful then that defiles us before God. Again, I think these prepositions are so important. They were all caught up about what's going into, and the Lord's more worried about what's coming out of, but ultimately the most important one is what's coming from. What's coming from the heart is fueling what's coming out of the mouth. And hopefully by now you've already put two and two together, and you know we're talking about our words. So this is where we need to really come down the home stretch. Verse 18, look at that with your eyes, please. Look at verse 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Verse 19, so verse 18 is our words. Verse 19, for out of the heart come, then we have these thoughts, okay, that's internal, but then we have these actions, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, out of the heart. So verse 18, our words. Verse 19, our actions. Let's put those two and two together. Our words, this is important, our words and our actions are our heart coming out. Our words and our actions are our heart, our core, our thoughts, our will, our very being, our core. Your thoughts and your actions, is that's your heart coming out. What does it say about you? Here's a question. When our words, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles us. When our words are angry, by the way. I need to frame this this way. So often our words 
are indicators of what we are. So often. Jeff, why did you qualify that with the word often? Because we could fake it with kind words and not be kind. We could fake it with worshipful words and not be worshipful. What I'm getting ready to talk about is when we're not faking it, when the real us, and it's just flowing, free, unguarded. When we're unguarded, free, we're just talking, and our words are angry. What does that say about our heart? It says we are an angry person. Hang with me. When we're just talking and free-flowing, not guarding, and our words are lustful, our words are lustful, it's because we're lustful. When our words are covetous, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want that, I want that, constantly, you're a covetous person. When your words are deceitful, I'm preaching on this this week, I was that close. There was a situation, I almost sent a text, and before I got halfway through it, I realized this is a deceitful text. (laughs) It's like... What are you doing, Jeff? You're trying to pawn off like you did something. You're trying to make it vague enough as if you've done something when you hadn't. Like, yeah, delete. Let's give an accurate text. Thankfully, the Lord didn't let me finish that. Because I was getting ready to make a deceitful text. Now, none of you are going to believe my text. when I say, Yeah, I don't believe this. When our words are selfish, it means we're selfish. When our words, unguarded, are kind says something about you. When you're without even thinking or trying and your words are just kind of flowing, coming out worshipful of God, you're a worshipful person. What do your words say about you? What do you talk about when you get to pick? Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and that list. Acts of murder, adultery, fornication, stealing, lying, slander, they would never happen If they weren't conceived in our heart. I I see my time. But I I want you to feel what I'm about to say. Why do people commit murder? Why do people commit adultery? Answer this in your head. Just answer it in your head. The reason people commit murder is because they are a murderer. The reason people commit adultery is because they are an adulterer. No, 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 they became an adulterer. No, no, no. They committed adultery because they're an adulterer in their heart. Do you know why people steal? Because they're a thief. Why do people commit sexual immorality? Because they're fornicators. Why do people tell lies? Because we're liars. Why do people slander? Because we're cursing, blaspheming slanderers. This is what the Lord's saying. Out of the heart. See, our heart creates this, gives it permission, and even encourages these activities. This is what we really are. We're lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterous murderers. I think you're next to the last note is this one. The Lord's point is that even an invisible presence of these evils in our heart defiles us before God. It isn't what food you ate. I remember back in Matthew 5 when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what he said about the verbally abusive person, the angry 
Now, they haven't committed murder physically, but remember, they're angry, and they're lashing out, and they're killing people's spirit. The Lord says, you're in danger of the judgment. You've heard that people commit murder in danger of hellfire. I say to you that if you're angry, you're in danger of the judgment. You're a murderer in the heart. You remember what he said? Those who go around looking at people, not noticing, not like, oh, I noticed something about that person. No, they look back with the intention of stirring up lustful thoughts. It may be the all-out-and-out crude and rude stare, or it may be the quick snapshot, think about it, quick another slap shot, thinking about it, running it over. You know why they do that? Because you're an adulterer. You're committing adultery in the heart. It's happening in the heart. It's about the heart. When the heart gets right, everything else will get right. Ryle says, uh-oh, J.C. Ryle says, this is no sketch of the heart of a robber or a murderer. Ooh, these are bad people. He says, it's the true and faithful account of the hearts of all mankind. Like, this isn't edifying, Jeff. This is not edifying. You know who I thought about? I thought about the best among us in the Old Testament. We're talking about the heart. Thought about David. King David. David was a great man. What two big sins did he commit? Adultery and then murder. And he's the best of us. Humanly speaking, somebody has a heart after God. It's David. And he committed adultery and murder. Why? Why did that? How did that happen? It was in him the whole time, just waiting for the right opportunity. Hear this. I'm, I'm, I'm going really quick here. Get this. If you or I have not yet committed murder or adultery or fornication, any of those acts, it's because the just right circumstances and opportunities have not yet risen in our life by God's grace. Because it's in us. But do you remember what David finally concluded? Psalm 51, verse 10. I, I've tried. Look what I did. God, I need you to create in me a new heart. This one's awful. He's the best of us. The best of us blew it. Murder. Moses committed murder. You're kidding. Yeah, these are the big guys. Murdered. Flat out murdered somebody. David says, I need you to create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Well, I have good news. I'm finishing with some good news. Jesus Christ offers an alien righteousness and a brand new heart to everyone who will put their faith and trust in Him if they'll receive it by His free grace and receive it by their faith. Will you receive it by faith? Have you received that? So I wanted to leave on a good note. I didn't want to leave with just, hey, everybody know, this is what Jesus says about our hearts. We're lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterous, idolatrous, murderers. Okay, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. I don't want to leave you with that. So the Lord offers us a new heart. And even Christians who have a new heart and have had all of those sins forgiven, we need the Lord to renew our minds daily. Would you finish with me, literally finish Ephesians chapter 2. Just go over there quickly. We'll fly through this. And let's see what the Lord offers. He offers an alien righteousness. We don't have any. Lord, I don't have any. I need a new heart. Good news. Jesus says, I give you a new heart. I give you an alien righteousness. I give you my righteousness. We're going to read verse 13 to 16. And then we'll pray. Verse 12 had just said, verse 11 says, Remember, you Gentiles, 
right at the end, just above our text, he says, remember you were separated from Christ? Do you remember when you were strangers? you remember that you had no hope? You were without God in the world. Watch verse 13. But now... But now, have you ever experienced verse 13? For me, it was 1979. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, everybody should hear this with understanding. Lord, help me to understand what this is saying. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's death. You who once were far off have been brought near, that's life. By the blood of Christ. He was punished for our sins. His blood washes and cleanses of our sins. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Me, 1979. Verse 14. For, how'd that happen? For he himself is our peace. You mean it's not me keeping rules and regulations and and watching my diet and eating the right foods, not eating the wrong foods, drinking the right things, not drinking the wrong things? For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, if you read the context. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Not only between Jew and Gentile, but between God and man. He's broken that wall down. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jeff Bartlett doesn't have to keep all of those. Jesus tore those away. They don't apply to me. I'm not going to be held by that standard. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in, him, in himself one, one new man. In place of the two, Jew, Gentile. So making peace and might reconcile us, harmony, peace, us, back with God and with each other, Jews and Gentiles, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's what the Lord offers. Have you ever had it? If you've never had a time where you've like received the Lord's cross death as your payment for sin and trusted Him as your Savior and don't dare add anything else to it, well, then you're just going through life with a wicked heart that's going to be exposed on the day of judgment and it will not go well. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Jesus' cross death provides us true peace with God. Not our futile attempts to keep the law. Not our futile attempts to keep ordinances. And praise the Lord. His plan all along, his death unified believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one body. So that some may choose to have a restricted diet in one area or another. That's fine as long as we're not feeling superior and judgmental and righteous based on our performance. No, we know we're made righteous by the death of Christ, by the blood of Christ in our place. Have you ever experienced Ephesians 2.13? But now, by the blood of Christ, you've been brought near to God. You were born away from Him and you were walking away from Him. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of His great love wherewith He loved us, He's raised us up to sit with Christ at the Father's right hand. By grace, you've been saved. By grace, It's purely a gift of God. I just wonder, I'm going to pray in just a moment. Is there anyone right now, you say, Jeff, this wasn't even like a salvation message. But is there anyone that verse 18, 19 stroke to, stroke, spoke to you so much that you're thinking, man, that's my heart. I've done a lot of those things and any of those I've not done, I could have done in the right circumstances. I'm defiled before God. God, I need a new heart. If you've never done it, is you have to believe why don't you just by faith agree
agree with God. God, right now, agree with Him. If you, you're like, Jeff, I've tried to do better, and I just keep blowing it. Right, that's you. That's you doing it. You have a wicked heart. You have a defiled heart. Why don't you just, somebody watching right now online, somebody listening to this later, a month, six months later, I don't know when. Why don't you just right now, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. This is my heart. It is wicked. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to provide peace. Just tell him that. Just a few verses before what I read last. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved. Through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any one of us would boast. God will have no boasting. Why don't you just say, God, I can't save myself. I've tried and blown it. I am trusting you to save me. I receive. I'll take it, God. I receive your free gift of salvation. And then believe it with everything you've got. Because he cannot lie. Christian, can I leave you with this just before I pray? Always listen to God's word with an intentionality to understand and obey heart right now even when I start praying in just a moment is a great time to let the Lord evaluate you don't check out don't just ask him Lord what do my words say about me what kind of heart do I have am I ever caught being kind am I ever caught being encouraging am I ever caught being worshipful and glorifying in my words or am I caught cursing and in anger. Bragging. Boasting. Oh, it would do us good if we could somehow have a recording of our words over the last week and just play them back. They'd tell the story. Is it you talking a whole lot about you and how great you are? Never shedding light on what you've done wrong. It's a proud heart. What do our actions say about Father, as we dismiss, another big passage this week that we didn't anticipate. Thought it would be a lot easier and simpler. But Lord, I pray that even as we talked about food, that we learned lessons for life, that you are the Lord, that everything you say, all of your word is inspired. All of your word is profitable. But Lord, we need to understand the whole counsel of your word and how it applies to our lives today. And then let us live accordingly. Let us live with a clean conscience. God, I pray for this congregation that we'll live wisely. Lord, if something is not wise, not defiling, just not wise for us, then Lord, let us show wisdom in how we live. Lord, let our externals show that our heart is pure, made clean, right with you, educated by your word. We pray this in Christ's name.